welcome to the audio newsletter for the Northwestern Program in Sound Arts and Industries. I'm Brad West. There are few people in the world like Trimpen. From sound sculptures of almost 700 self-playing, towering guitars to a house of pianos, Trimpen's work repurposes found objects into installations that are eccentric, inventive, and fascinating. He won a prestigious MacArthur Fellowship, or Genius Grant, in 1997, and has artwork spanning the globe. Take a trip with us as Trimpin talks about a selection of his works, navigating the art community as a sound artist, and the beauty of natural sound. My name is Trimpin, and I am a kinetic sound artist. My father was teaching students mostly brass instruments and he would like to go just on a Sunday because weekdays uh, he was working and he would ask me, you know, let's go like eight o'clock in the morning and play uh, music out there in the woods. And we went to an area, uh, it was almost like an amphitheater and we put up the music stands and uh, was playing this very simple music. It was nothing, you know, like uh, complicated. But uh, immediately when we were starting, I was listening different. I was always practicing inside. I was never, you know, uh, outside to be right uh, with the nature because a lot of birds were singing, there was uh, the wind was making this noise with the leaves and it was just like an experience which from this point on I want to explore this more, what, what happens when you listen to natural sounds. And I was never interested so much into working with electronic sounds or with uh, amplified sounds or with uh, synthesized sounds. Sometimes certain comments are out there saying I'm, I'm against uh, recorded sound. That's not true or it's not, you know, like, a, no, I'm not. But I thought I still want to look more into it when you have a natural acoustical environment, how you can manipulate sound movements, moving sound through space. With modified, amplified sounds, there's certain kind of limitation. Like one time, I remember uh, being artist in residence in San Francisco, the Exploratorium. And uh, I used an uh, installation uh, which I used duck calls as an instrument. I tuned the duck calls like hunters are using, you know, like uh, so they would uh, make sounds like quack, 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 quack. short staccato sounds. But each duck call had a slightly different tuning. And uh, there was also like flutes, like uh, recorder flutes and, and organ pipes. It was kind of a round uh, installation, and I thought, and the exploratorium had uh, a small uh, lake, and I thought, let's put this piece uh, on an intertube, and let's float it on this small lake, and suddenly all the ducks would come nearby, from nearby, you know, and checking out. Some of them would jump 
on top of this uh, installation, which was very low. Uh, it was only like four feet in diameter. And it was quite fascinating to see how they was interested in this kind of sound. And some ducks, you know, would uh, jump on and, and poop all over, you know, it was kind of a big mess. The next day, we, we, we recorded this, uh, put uh, a recorder and a small amp with a speaker, and they pushed it out, played exactly the same sequence, and not one duck showed up. They knew exactly this was fake. And this also, I felt sometimes different, like when I'm in a certain environment, this never could be put on, on a recording Hundred years ago, uh, roughly hundred years ago, the loudspeaker coil was kind of invented. And today, this, this principle is almost identical, the same. There's nothing different. Like the environment is, you know, there are certain kind of overtones, certain kind of harmonics, different uh, wall configuration. But when you're inside and you listen to the recording, you don't have the same kind of experience. You have to be there. Certain installation, you're actually walking through the instrument. Like the Canon in purple installation, for example, had like six layers uh, of instruments. Uh, two layers above ear, one layer with the ear, and then three layers below. So you could actually have a certain melodic uh, sequence going up there on, and suddenly it would move to, to the lower part in the space. And everybody immediately noticed uh, this kind of difference. And that's how the audience gets more engaged by exploring what is going on here, how is this uh, working. So there is a certain kind of response, uh, a human response. In the late 70s, I noticed a, a large exhibition being planned in, in Berlin. It was called Für Augen and Ohren, for your eyes and ears, looking through the history of mechanical instruments. And they also had like a this lecturer, uh, Charles Amerkanian, was lecturing works on Nincaro and with samples. He had some player piano rolls uh, with him. They actually didn't work really on a regular player piano because Nincaro's player pianos was specially prepared. I heard his music uh, on a radio station and I never heard music like this before. Music which I couldn't uh, understand right away. So I asked Charles Amerikanin at this lecture for Nencaro's address, and then we got into communication. Uh, I wrote to Nencaro, said, look, I have a machine who can actually read all your player piano roll, and they can be stored in a computer data file. And then I got like a one-sentence letter back from him saying, oh, uh, sorry, somebody tried this before. It, it doesn't work. It wasn't until 1980, I think it was 86, and then Kerry invited me to come to Mexico City to scan all his player piano rolls. And we started to scan in study number one of Nancaro's. And I said, okay, let's play it back using the MIDI data. And it was starting to play. And then Carrie immediately said, oh, wait a minute, uh, there's a few notes not correct. So first of all, myself, how can you tell when so many notes are playing that a few notes are not correct? And I said, okay, let's scan it in again. I did the same process, played it back, 
Then he said, well, still the same problem. And then I was starting to look. I noticed that every time he punched a wrong hole, he would take scotch tape to tape it over and punch in the right position the right hole. And of course, my optical scanner, optical using light, would go through the scotch tape and recognize it as a musical note, but in the wrong spot. I had to stop immediately, you know, and said, well, this machine doesn't work for your, uh, for your roles. I have to redesign it and build a machine which uses the same technology like a player piano is using, air, like suction. I had to use a vacuum cleaner uh, to hook up this uh, scanner. So the tracker bar, like the scanner, actually had almost 100 air-sensitive switches. So every time a perforated hole would go over the tracker bar, the membrane would open up and there was very precise, this kind of miniature membrane uh, switches and uh, it worked perfect. When I'm listening to any kind of concert, like acoustical music, there's some visualization terms, what what you're just perceiving. And with liquid percussion, I thought I want to visualize how actually a a rhythm looks like, that when a water drip uh, is falling down, like when you have one water drip, it just hits, you know, the bottom with one hit. But when you have a certain kind of uh, rhythmical pattern uh, dripping down, like dum, bum, 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 bum. So you can actually see using water as a a medium to to visualize uh, the musical score. Currently, I'm working on like four or five projects simultaneously always, but each project sometimes goes on for two years, three years, you know, there's always uh, like, uh, when, when I get a commission and somebody would say, okay, uh, the performance is in six months, they well, sorry, I cannot do this. It takes a while to work on the concept, how to build this kind of instrument or this uh, object uh, to, to make this sound. You have to apply uh, for work, you have to apply for opportunities or uh, ways to, as an artist, uh, to get your work out there because numerous times on panels, when a particular artist's resume or an image or music or whatever it is uh, comes up a few times, suddenly you recognize, oh wow, I heard this before and it was interesting. But also, uh, especially in Europe, a sound artist uh, has a very hard time to fit into the composer guild, like in the music mafia. 30 years ago or so, like, I would have uh, no chance in Germany to being accepted as a sound artist. I remember applying for certain grants and I would get the so-called fuck you letter saying, we liked your proposal, but you applied in the wrong department. Your proposal looks like it's more visual because I was sending in visual scores and, and, uh, and okay, let's 
apply in the visual department, but then of course the letter would come back, oh, sorry, uh, this looks like you are dealing with music and not with the visual arts. So there was uh, a very hard time, even here in the United States, until this interdisciplinary discipline was kind of uh, more accepted uh, in, in the art community. So I'm getting less uh, fuck you letters, but once in a while there's still one coming in. An excellent look into the world of Trimpin is the 2009 documentary Trimpin, The Sound of Invention. So be sure to check that out. You can learn more about our program through sound.northwestern.edu or by emailing sound at northwestern.edu. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the audio newsletter of Northwestern University's MA program in Sound Arts and Industries. Today's episode, Sculpting Sounds with Trimpin, was produced by Jason Foley, featuring an interview with Trimpin. Our theme is by Brendan Baker, and our podcast is produced by Brad West. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching Northwestern Sound to learn about how sound works at Northwestern. Northwestern.